Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome to the Great Ormond Street Hospital paediatric educational podcasts. My name is Sarah Warayich and today we're joined by Joe Briley and we're going to talk about ethics. Welcome Joe. Morning Sarah. Great, so we've already had an introduction about ethics which has been fantastic but what are we going to talk about today? I think it'd be useful to think about um, why paediatricians and child health professionals need to understand ethics and the law throughout their careers and why they're important and I think helpful for people as they go through a journey on um, getting better at treating children and their families. So what should paediatricians know then about ethics and law? So I think I'm going to tackle it all together because a lot of this is about how you practice, how you think about being the best doctor you can be or the best health professional to look after sick children and uh, to work with them and their parents uh, or families. And I think there's some really basic things. So we have some really good regulatory bodies in the UK that give really strong, helpful guidance in this. So I'd commend anyone to, to really look at the GMC duties of a doctor. There's a number of things there that actually tell us how we ought to behave, how we ought to look after people, such as, you know, make the care of your patient your first concern. And that sounds very trite, but it isn't. It's the fundamental doctor-patient relationship. For a paediatrician, that's our relationship with the child and, and with the child, the parents and the rest of the family. And that fundamental thing to, to push back and say, actually, why am I here every day? It's to try and treat this child in front of me whether that's a GP being pushed to try and look at a very sick child inside a very short period of time and pick out those that might become very, very unwell, that need to be referred to casualty for, for further care, or the paediatrician who's seeing a child in the emergency department, how do you make sure you're thinking about the child who's quiet in the corner who might have sepsis and listen to the parents and, and make sure that child gets the treatment it needs. So the basic, basic rules and duties for being a paediatrician from regulatory bodies are really important. The ethics of that but also the law. The BMA has got some fantastic ethics guidance and other regulatory bodies and other bodies have got helpful guidance out there, such as the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. Um, I think for all of us, we're going to need to think about having our um, performance assessed through our careers. And it's a, it's a very helpful thing, I think, for most of us having a regular appraisal cycle, how we develop our careers. And I think as paediatricians, as you get more familiar with doing your area of expertise, then that appraisal, seeking to improve things and going forward, getting your feedback from parents and children themselves is a really positive thing. And that feeds into revalidation. We have to be able to say we are good enough to do our jobs. And I think that's something that is is more and more in the public domain and in the public interest, that we have to make sure that doctors are as good at doing their jobs at the last day of practice as the first. So... Are there any acts or laws that we should know about as paediatricians? There certainly are, uh, Sarah. So I guess the most important one is the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which has a number of kind of standards in it for us as a public body in terms of healthcare to show us what we owe to children, the rights they have to make sure they have access to the best healthcare and, and for how we behave and think about really putting the child at the centre of all we do. So the Act talks about, or the, the UN Convention talks about really what the best interest of the child being the thing we should aim for. Into English law, the Children Act, which is kind of a different act in different kind of parts of the United Kingdom, so the England and Welsh Children Act is the, the one I'm most familiar with, really talks about the best interest of the child being paramount, the most important thing. And this is this is something that for paediatricians is a real key factor of what we do every day. We make the child the focus of all our concerns. We make the child 
the centre of our healthcare. That's normally something that's best represented by the parents as the advocates of the child. And I think paediatric practice has got much better. It's become much more family-centred, trying to look at the families, the entities supporting the child. And if you like, there's an ethical part of that, which is kind of um, the ethics of care, feminist ethics, lesbian ethics, different terms for it, which is slightly different than the traditional things you might have first learned at medical school about autonomy, beneficence, justice, non-maleficence, these four behemoths of medical ethics, which really are very contractual and tell us the child is someone with rights and, and you know, we should think about their autonomy. Well, actually, for children, I'm not sure that's as great a system as it might be for adults. For children, the, the kind of more family-centered approach, I think, is a, a better way of thinking about ethics. And so that's really quite a, a useful thing for paediatricians to think about a family-centered approach. Of course, there are times when that can become a problem as well, when the child's best interest might not be the focus of everybody. And of course, areas such as child protection or, or disagreements about treatments that children should be given, that's the kind of area I guess we'll get onto. But I think that the main ones to think about are the Children Act and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. I guess we're going to talk about consent later on because there are important laws and, mm -hmm. and things around consent for children. But yep. they're the basic ones I think every paediatrician ought to be aware of. Great, thank you. So just picking up on a point about um, sort of rights of the child. I mean, at, when I was at medical school, we learned a lot about Gillick competency. Mm. How relevant is that today and how much is that, has that changed at all? No, no, I think it's incredibly relevant. And it's, it's the Gillick kind of competency comes from a, a, a particular a, a challenge to uh, decision making by children from the parents. And really has set the standard for um, us as paediatricians to, to work out when we let the older child start to make their own decisions in healthcare. I think the law is very, um, has to be kind of right angled, if you like, with very absolute things. But as, as most paediatricians will know, as children get older, they become more able to be part of decision making, unless there are severe problems with their. their way they can think and interact with developmental problems. But for most children who grow into adults and, and even children with quite complex disability, they can become decision makers themselves. Now, the law will say that becomes absolute at the age of 18 when you have to consent to medical treatments mm -hmm. unless you clearly have a, an impairment of your own and you can't. But under the age of 18, children have a situation where a number of people can consent to their healthcare. So... Firstly, the medical team need to offer treatment that is thought to be in the child's best interests. So consent is limited to that which will be in the child's best interest, which is a point of contention in recent years. The child themselves can consent to that if they're over 16 years of age uh, by the Family Law Reform Act. And that's an absolute right that the child should have. The child should be the person who consents over the age of 16. So for many paediatricians, they, they still will approach the parents but actually, over the age of 16, it should be the child who is the consenting person rather than anyone else. Under the age of 16, at any age at all, a child can prove themselves to be Gillick competent. And that's if they meet the standards of holding information, weighing it, retaining it, understanding the options. And this is all covered really nicely in the GMC 0-18 um, guidance. But it does mean that children can consent. In fact, we've done quite a bit of research looking at what children would prefer, and most children will prefer to make decisions together with their parents. Um, and that's quite a bit of work done in the research area with the National Council on Bioethics, thinking about how children ought to be best participants in healthcare. 
I think there's this emerging competency of children to be the decision makers. But actually, despite what the law says, people over the age of 18 still sometimes have their mums or wives and, and other very important partners come in and make decisions about healthcare with them. And that's that kind of pushback from this autonomous, the person, the individual makes decisions over healthcare, which the law would say is their right in the law, to how actually medicine is practised. And so I think a lot more of the decision making, and we're seeing this more and more in adult intensive care, is very family centred. Um, when often you might have the adult patient themselves who has incapacity, and that would mean that no one can consent for them, but the role of the family in that area is becoming more and more important in determining healthcare interventions and what will happen. Is there variation in how we view consent in children across the UK? And actually, does that affect how we provide care? Especially for a a centre like Great Ormond Street, where we get patients coming in from all over the country. I I don't think so. I think basically the law is very clear and the way we should practice is very clear. There's a slight difference in Scotland about the age of when children can give consent to healthcare and the soon-to-be adults, which I won't touch on because we're obviously monitoring those still. I think in some ways the law is there for the difficult cases, but generally our practice, guided by that, is, is really to involve the child. As the UN Convention says, whenever healthcare decisions are being made, to the best of that child's ability, our job is to make sure the child isn't participating because we've missed something out, we've not given the child enough information, We've not given the child information in a way that they and the parents can understand it. So I think, I mean, Great Ormond Street hopefully will be a leading centre in this sort of stuff, and I know it is. We need to get better at explaining really hard things. And I think that's one of the differences I've seen over time. Some of the concepts we have to explain now with medicine advancing at an amazing rate are, are so more difficult than they were 20 years ago thinking about the world of genetics and gene therapy and some of the amazing treatments being done here. And I will go along as, I, you know, I'm not an expert in some of these fields and I will sometimes go along and just go, what? C- could you could you explain mm-hmm. that again? Because the science is quite tough for some of these things. And our job, and, and it's work that I think our, our junior doctors, our nurses and consultant colleagues here do amazingly well, is trying to translate some of the very complex science into language that people can understand. And those people include people who are not in that speciality. So I think that language is very, very important because children need to understand to be able to participate in, in healthcare decisions. So this then brings me on to my next question around rare diseases and treatment that hasn't necessarily undergone randomised control trials. So how do we view ethics in those scenarios? So it, it's a really good question. And we've had this paradigm of healthcare advancing by the randomised controlled trial or cluster intervention studies. And that's great if you have a disease that actually, let's say asthma, where it's quite prevalent, you have lots of people with similar symptoms, and you can randomise into different groups, either a standard treatment versus something else. But if you've got a disease where you're one of the only five people on the planet, 10 people in the country, something like that, how can you possibly develop new treatments? And these are kind of so-called orphan diseases from years ago. And there are some really good breakthroughs and things being discovered in this area. But it's this entire world of first-in-man innovative treatment and actually desperation to try and help a child who may be dying with no other option when there may be something on the shelf that might help them. We developed a process in about 2009 to look at the ethics of this, a framework which we've published and have used since then 
together with uh, researchers, um, the, the ethics committee here with philosophers, ethicists, lawyers, and actually lots of our lay members and other people, but together with children and families to think through these really rare disease treatments and trying to work out when is too much? When should you not push a child further if the chance of mm. cure or even survival is so small and the burden's so great? And this is something that works quite well with the Children Act. You have to think of the child's best interests. And that's done in a welfare calculation, thinking about the burdens and benefits of treatment. The Royal College have a, a, a framework I was lucky to be part of doing the last version of, which looks at when, when you think about decisions to limit or withdraw treatment in childhood. So let's say a child is on intensive care and they're dying. When is it okay to stop the ventilator? What are the roles of the different people in that? The parents, the clinical team, the ICU team, the experts in maybe oncology, and the parents and the child themselves, together with other support factors. And that document has, and it's it's free on the internet, um, in a, a supplement for archived disease of childhood 2015, that has information on how you think about these things, the ethics, the law, but also how you might go ahead if there are disagreements about that, which there, there often are to start off with, because the parents facing the death of their child mm. is an unbearable tragedy. So their initial feeling is, no, 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 I just can't accept this at all. Um, and it's just, you know, how you go through that, thinking about things like mediation, ethics committees, bringing outside help in if the religious factor is a very important thing. We're, we're really lucky. We've got mm. a great chaplaincy team in the hospital. But also we bring religious leaders in from, say, uh, Regent's Park Mosque or from... from synagogues near Rabbit, different people or, or elders from different churches and they're unbelievably helpful at coming not just supporting the family which is their number one job I think number one role but also helping find a way through what sometimes can see an impasse where you think well I'm not sure how we can go forward here yeah. but from our side of that as a clinician time and listening are definitely the best ways through this spend time with the family listen to what they say and if you haven't heard them listen again Mm -hmm. But sometimes having people come along who will maybe come from the same background, culture and faith can be incredibly helpful. And with that, we, we've even published this a few years ago, about 95% of those kind of, we're not going to get through this situation with disagreement, are resolved. We get to mm -hmm. somewhere where it, in different ways, the child's best interests are, are thought about. Some of those children survive, some don't. I'm not you know, suggesting that all those children don't survive. But it's how you get through this and particularly for the parents and family because this is their child and they will have the memories of what went on for a long long time so i suppose this is maybe a bit of a difficult question but how do you then manage conflict um between what might be culturally and religiously acceptable um versus what the law says um, and how do we balance that yeah that's a really good question because i think we one of the worries we have is sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to think about culture and other stuff when actually the other side of our heads as clinicians is we're not really doing what's in the best interest of the child. And, and this is something that is well described throughout healthcare now, particularly as societies advance and change, and leads to this situation called moral distress initially, of course, in the nursing literature, where the idea is the nurse by the bedside is not really in agreement with stuff that's being done to the child. Maybe that's not been explained to them. Maybe they're not quite sure why it's happening, but they can see the burdens happening to the child. The benefits are very hard to work out. Um, 
there's lots of discussion about whether that's a, a, a sensible, realistic term because it kind of suggests that people don't have their own kind of um, power to think through situations, if you like. We, we've done some work with Anne McNiv and one of my colleagues thinking about combating moral distress by having ethics drop-in sessions and training sessions for pre-reg nurses, bedside nurses, other members of the clinical team, which seem to go very well. But I, I think it's a real issue, um, and it's becoming more of an issue. I, I was talking with our chaplain only last night about how some of these situations where where you may have a disagreement with a family about a fundamental issue about what should happen, but has no conflict involved whatsoever. And I think that's one of the messages it's useful to get out, is that the conflict is not necessary. Mm -hmm. But you may have a disagreement, and you may have to seek a resolution from someone who can make a decision over both parties in that, which is normally the court. Um, but conflict is kind of the, I would say, the abnormal situation, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And the job as clinicians is simply to advocate for the best interests of the child, but also with humility to listen to other parties involved. And, and that's where the role of things like mediation are being pushed hard now. And, and there's a role in terms of making sure people are able to listen to each other in a constructive way. So I think that's an improving area. But again, the conflicts are becoming, perhaps have a bigger public exposure than they had before. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly think anything's very new about them, apart from the process is taking longer to resolve them. That's definitely something we've seen, which is the courts having more levels of appeal. Um, and certainly in the clinical field, needing more second opinions before you even suggest approaching the court in really challenging cases. The other thing that comes into that is the globalisation of medicine as well, and mm. social media and populism. But I, I expect that's a podcast for another day. Okay, I was just going to ask you a question about social media. So before before we end this, I wonder if we could just very briefly touch upon how um, social media now affects um, our clinicians in their decision making or their management of really difficult ethical cases. So I, well, I, I think the first thing to say is it's here to stay and not going away. Mm -hmm. The internet isn't going to be switched <laughs> off anytime soon. Um, but actually, I think it's been an overwhelmingly good thing. And we, we sometimes focus on the difficult stuff that arises from social media, but it's an incredibly good thing for most children to, I mean, I, I focus on rare diseases again. If you're a child with a very rare disease, you used to have a doctor who would tell you about your rare disease and you would go home. And now you can contact people all over the world with that disease, with that problem, and say, well, what's it like? What happened? What? And so this kind of, I, I, people talk about an empowerment of patients, a leveling of the playing field. I, I just think it's an improvement. I mean, I'll be honest with you, a lot of doctors, when you say I've got four patients in the world with this condition, you'd say, well, when did you see one before? Mm. Well, I've read the books. Well, those books are now online and they're freely available and the papers are online. The slight problem with that is social media, the internet, comes with a whole heap of unregulated opinion-based stuff. And so it does mean that people who will want you could there's two ways to look at it one is to marginalize now have a voice but it also leads to the non-scientific having a voice and i think the clearest problem there for me as a pediatrician would be the situation with vaccines at the moment we have children in this country dying of measles in 2019 uh, you know i didn't think i'd see that mm -hmm. we have a vaccine preventable disease children are dying of it because of discredited research and it's <sighs> 
it's kind of an astonishing way in terms of fake news and the entire world now mm-hmm. flat earth society <laughs> where does one go well I, I suspect you just have to tackle this with science and information but the slight issue there is when people don't believe the information mm. and the equalization between a large scale medical research study and the opinions of a celebrity is is a real challenge and i i would wouldn't pretend to have a solution to that apart from we just have to have the ability to sit and talk to patients to children and say this is the evidence this is why we should do this and i i think one of the paradoxes is sadly hopefully people will see that children are dying and that might mean that vaccinations become more acceptable again but it's an utter tragedy probably one of the worst things in my time as a doctor to see children are dying of something that that we can prevent Mm. now you know you think about the work we do to reduce the speeds of cars on roads and make kids wear cycle helmets which has been an amazing success story Mm -hmm. much better treatment for so many medical things like prematurity heart surgery amazing success in medicine amazing how we can get children that would have all died leukemia things like that and yet we've forgotten how to protect against measles and mumps and it's just astonishing great well thank you very much joe for talking to us today about why pediatricians should know about ethics and law and this concludes this podcast stay tuned for the next one in the series thank you for listening to gosh pods if you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by gosh learning academy please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search learning academy or follow us on twitter at gosh learn acad <laughs>